The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Vic Reclitus, a reporter at Market Watch, and today I'm very pleased to have with us Sarah Breiner. She is the director of research and strategy at Open Secrets, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit that tracks money in American politics. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us today and, and being with us on this day before Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Uh, let's start out with a pretty broad question. Going into the 2024 elections, what does Open Secrets see as the top issues in campaign finance? I think they mirror a lot of the top issues in American society. Um, and to that, I say, you know, we have a very polarized public right now, and we're seeing in donation patterns um, increased, uh, I guess, enthusiasm and polarization around donations to kind of extreme candidates. And by that, I mean, we see a lot of money um, coming from small donors, uh, more than really ever in history. Uh, and that's a continuation of a long-standing trend. Now, it's not, I'm not saying that the candidates who take that money are more extreme necessarily, um, but I think that that money is often attracted to people who hold um, polarizing or I guess sort of loud opinions. Um, and so we're seeing that uh, really play a major role in um, campaign finance now. Um you know, we had a, an article recently about uh, S&P 500 CEO giving to um, uh, principal campaign committees and joint fundraising committees. And one thing that we found was that um, former President Trump didn't get any such donations from CEOs. And for uh, President Biden, it was just a couple of CEOs. I wanted to get your your thoughts on that. Um, you know, the, the ones who did get them were uh, Nikki Haley, um, Tim Scott, who's no longer in the race. Uh, what do you think that means? Does that show that CEOs are just like the rest of the country in many ways and uh, they're not that excited about a 2020 rematch? Or um, what's your what's your take on that? Well, I think it is different for the two candidates. So Trump has always had sort of a dicey relationship with um, big CEOs. Uh, and that goes back to his 2016 campaign when he really didn't fundraise much at all. Uh, and once he was elected, um, the playing field kind of changed a lot because uh, you need that kind of money to support a campaign. And since he was the incumbent um, in 2020, uh, you'd see a lot more of that money traditionally going to the incumbent. Um, so I think for him, he's never worked particularly hard to cultivate that kind of money. Uh, he rather um, speaks to the kind of general masses, as well as some of the kingmaker private company owners um, who are not CEOs of publicly traded companies. Um, so that's my feeling about Trump. Uh, Biden, on the other hand, um, might be a little bit more concerned uh, about that as an incumbent. He should expect to see a fair amount of money coming in from those big traditional supporters of American politics. Um, and if he's not, I think that that perhaps does go to your point. Maybe CEOs just aren't that excited about Biden 2024. 
that all being said, it's very, very early. Um, and they don't need to give him, he doesn't have a really particularly at this point active primary. Um, and so they don't need to give him money yet. <laughs> uh, and they might just be holding their um, finances close to their chest until uh, the race heats up a little bit more. <laughs> For um, folks like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, um, the one thing that came out in that article was um, you know, Tim Scott's the top Republican on the Senate Banking Committee. Mm -hmm. So it, it might be smart for a CEO to give to him just even if even if he doesn't actually get the presidential nomination, which clearly he won't since he suspended his campaign. And then maybe Nikki Haley, maybe she'll just end up with a top administration position as well. Uh, do you agree with that? Or could, could you talk about that? I think it's different for the two candidates as well. Tim Scott has a long history of running for offices uh, or of, of campaigning and raising money for offices that he's not actually running for. Um, so last Senate campaign, he essentially had no opposition and he raised an absolutely monstrous amount of money, which really was to support this presidential campaign. Um, I'm sort of surprised, and I think a lot of people are, that he suspended his campaign so early. Uh, but I think that he did that um, to shore up support for a Trump alternative who is not DeSantis. Um, and that's Nikki Haley. So I think that for him, uh, sure, you know, he could be raising that money for his Senate aspirations for his because of his role on the banking committee. Absolutely. For Haley, who doesn't currently hold a federal office, uh, I think that money is actually coming from the exact kind of person who would like to back a non-Trump Republican. Um, and that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, there is some consternation in the field about how we haven't uh, if, how the Republican Party hasn't settled on a Trump alternative yet. Um, people thought it would be DeSantis. He kind of is fumbling the ball on that, I think. And so there's more coalescence, um, I think, around Haley as the candidate who appears to be in the best position to take that mantle from DeSantis and run as an alternative to Trump. Great. Um, and I want to remind viewers uh, to go ahead and sum submit some questions. We'll try to get as many of them as we can to Sarah. Um, and we've got some in already. Um, one is from Larry. He says, people often say we need to get the money out of politics. Um, but it seems that the money will just grow as government and government power grows. And so uh, one needs the money uh, and the access in order to protect one's business interests from political threats. Uh, and uh, Larry would like you to comment on that. Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, the reason that the United States has incredibly expensive elections and that the money just balloons uh, cycle after cycle is actually because of a Supreme Court-based restriction on um, curtailing, uh, on how we can't curtail political spending um, because they view that as free speech. Um, and so unlike in countries in Europe where campaigns are truncated, you know, you can only run in a three month period, for example, prior to the election um, in the United States, the Supreme Court has made it very clear that you can be running for office for however long you want. Um, that means that there's an incentive for candidates to raise as much money as they can so that they can keep speaking, uh, which is the unrestricted part of this for as long as they want. Um, and so because of that, uh, like Larry said, we just see money going up and up and up and up and up. Um, I think that there are obvious and sort of justifiable inclinations that people hold to get money out. But um, I think there is also an understanding that 
what, what does that actually look like? Um, if you don't have money, how do you get your opinions out to the public? Um, I think maybe what people mean is getting big money out uh, rather than kind of smaller donations. But even so, uh, in the climate that we're in right now and in the political structure that we're in right now, we allow for super PACs to, and, and political parties and other sort of larger groups to take in huge amounts of money. And so candidates um, really need to be able to counter that. And that has led to an increase in the amount of money they're getting from individuals as well, even though that money is not Restrict, or is restricted in the amount that it can be given. Um, so it, it gets complicated. And I do think that, uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess I kind of hold the opinion that we shouldn't expect our politicians to know everything about everything in the world, right? You can't expect you, uh, you know, a member of Congress to be an expert about healthcare policy and the environment and foreign policy. You, you just can't expect that. And so they need to hear the voices of people in those industries and in those communities. Um, and so we, I think it's in the interest of everybody to make sure that politicians get a balanced uh, set of voices speaking to them. And that does cost money. And that costs money and is spent by sort of all um, types of uh, activists, be it CEOs or um, grassroots advocates. Okay. Uh, thanks for taking that one. Uh, here's one for from Christopher. Um, and basically is thinking, um, one of your thoughts about if the Democrats might uh, pull Gavin Newsom into the race, uh, if, if Biden opts out, uh, maybe I can kind of reframe that as a, as a mo money and politics question. I mean, if, if Trump or Biden ended up not being the party's nominee, um, how would that... Um, and that happened kind of relatively late in the race. How would that change things up for, um, how would that scramble campaign financing? Um, yeah, I guess I'll let you take it however you want. I mean, yeah, I mean that's a wild, that's yeah. a totally wild um, hypothetical. More so on the Biden side, um, the Democrats would have an absolute seismic shift in their sort of 2024 plan from house dog, you know, dog catcher race up to president. It would just be huge to have a new candidate um, as the presidential candidate. Uh, and you'd have all sorts of people who haven't said a word about running for president jumping into the race. People who have a lot of money on hand already would be much better positioned to be in that um, sort of conversation. Uh, <laughs> I think that he to for him to not for Biden to not be the nominee, he would need to make that choice by either dropping out or by getting, you know, physically unwell or something. Um, I don't think there's a chance for him to lose uh, at this point unless somebody comes in and totally revolutionizes the field or something, which would be really expensive at this point and very difficult to do. Um, it's possible. Uh, and I think it would be driven by um, a very unhappy group of progressive Democrats um, who do not like the way he's handled uh, the situation in Israel and Gaza, um, driving behind a candidate who is outspoken on those issues and attracting a lot of money. That that would be the, the sort of path forward for that type of candidate. But it would, uh, I think it's still a long shot. And if it were to happen, it would totally blow up the Democratic fundraising plan across the board. On the right, for Trump, I think it's a totally different scenario. Um, we already have a active primary on the Republican side. Um, and if Trump were to not be the candidate, I think you'd see a huge amount of uh, sort of his donors and his 
quote unquote kingmakers um, rushing towards an alternative. But I think that they would be mad. Um, and I'm not sure that they would uh, sort of back the alternative in the way that I think um, you might see if Biden was not the nominee. Uh, I think that there are plenty of Trump supporters and Trump donors who would say, nope, I'm if it's not him, I'm not getting involved. Um, and so I think that Trump is a not as not the nominee would be maybe less um, uh, seismic <laughs> than Biden, but it still would be a major shakeup to the way candidates are fundraising. Um, I wanted to look back to the, the last elections that we've had. What do you think were the main takeaways for 2022 and and um, for campaign finance? So what do you think that tells us about, about the, next, um, the next election? Ever since 2016, uh, the fundraising universe and sort of politics generally has been about Trump. Um, and I think that that's the case, even though Trump hasn't been on the ballot <laughs> in all of those cycles, but you have a incredibly um, mobilized uh, set of voters on both the right and the left who are extremely interested in whether or not Trump is in office. Um, and so we saw that in 2022, a lot of uh, progressive and sort of center left supporters for candidates who did not engage and kind of stop the steal sort of efforts. Um, and uh, some enthusiasm on the other side for people who believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, those candidates ended up not being that successful, but they did raise a fair amount of money. Um, I think generally the top line stories though are a lot of money from people giving in small amounts um, at, who see that as the kind of their way of politically participating. And then a lot of money from people who are giving in huge amounts, uh, sort of the exact opposite of that side of the coin, think Richard Uline, um, Ken Griffith, uh, George Soros, Tom Steyer, uh, who are hoping to, I guess, influence the I, the entire political dialogue. Um, and they do so by funding the super PACs of each party in huge amounts. Um, for 2020, um, do you think that there were any takeaways for campaign finance for that race that um, will be important in 2024, especially given that it might be a repeat for the White House race? If it's a repeat for the White House race, I'm not sure it will uh, look exactly the same in a fundraising perspective. I don't think that there's as much um, fervor, I guess, around the candidates as there was in that cycle, which was, in, which was, you know, records breaking, record shattering. Um, and I'm not sure that there is as much anti-Trump enthusiasm. It doesn't feel as kind of, um, ever present as it was then. Uh, and I'm, there's certainly not as much um, sort of pro-Biden uh, money support out there either. That all being said, 2020 was a very odd cycle because of COVID, um, because you had Mike Bloomberg come in in March and drop a billion dollars, <laughs> um, because you had a viable Democratic primary that was competitive and expensive. So I think that this election would look much more like the 2012 election or perhaps um, even... 20, yeah, 2012 is probably my yeah. best 
guess, um, which for campaign finance means that we might see a little less money, but <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, a vacuum attracts money, I think. So you might see that money um, being spent on things like school board races, which we already are, um, or ballot initiatives or sort of trickling down through the races to lower, um, but still consequential uh, contests. Um, let's switch over to lobbying for a little bit since that's a, a big focus for you all. Um, what do you think are the, the top issues uh, in lobbying right now in Washington? And um, you know what are you all tracking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, if you were to ask a typical uh, sort of American citizen what they think about the top issues right now, you'd hear a lot about um, Israel and Gaza, like I mentioned, you'd hear about gun rights, you'd hear about uh, inflation. Um, but those aren't necessarily the issues that are being talked about in Congress. Uh, certainly they are. Um, and I think the economy um, is and has always been one of the primary drivers of lobbying activity. Um, each cycle, the most sort of targeted bill are the appropriations bills. And we're seeing that again this cycle. Um, what's been interesting is that there hasn't been a huge uh, sort of uh, non-fiscal policy bill um, moving this cycle. You know, there hasn't been like an Obamacare. Uh, it's really just been about appropriations and making sure that the budget doesn't shut down. Um, and so that's been driving a lot of the lobbying. Nobody wants the budget to shut down um, or the government to shut down. Uh, and so that means funding the government and that's been driving most of the lobbying attention. Okay. Um, and I want to remind um, viewers to go ahead and submit questions if you haven't already. And thank you uh, to those who already have. Um, uh, one thing that we've been tracking is uh, restrictions on stock trading. Uh, there's been multiple bills over the years that would uh, put bigger limits on members of Congress and their family members from trading stocks. Uh, do you, what are you all seeing on that? Do you think that will someday actually have a restriction or is it just never going to happen? Well, they've tried um, to restrict buying and selling stocks over uh, sort of areas that they oversee <laughs> if they're on like, and, and that seems like it might have more um, of a chance of sort of moving uh, than, a, than a, a total ban. Um, it's just very difficult to get Congress to regulate themselves. <laughs> and a lot of these people um, who serve in Congress don't have day jobs anymore. You know, um, their day job is being a member of Congress or is being a politician. And so to get money, uh, most of many of them just rely on their money, making money for them um, through real estate, through stocks, through um, sort of investment accounts, through all sorts of sort of money making ventures that don't have to do with showing up to a job. And so to, for that reason, I think that it's a hard sell. <laughs> um, I think what might have more leeway are things like forbidding folks from who serve on the health committee from trading in pharmaceutical stocks, for example. Um, the way, and that to some degree that is illegal, uh, <laughs> and it's just difficult to enforce. And we've seen that happen, um, for example, when Senator Burr dumped a bunch of healthcare stocks uh, based on private knowledge gained in a committee hearing about. COVID prior to the shutdown happening. Um, and so I think that mm, he didn't really get in any significant trouble for that. Uh, and so 
even though it's, I think, technically against the rules. <laughs> um, and so I think that we have more room to go on enforcement um, of the existing policies before we go on a total ban. Um, so tell me if I'm on the right track here. I mean, part of the argument I've heard is that, um, you know, you don't want to put too many restrictions on people in Congress because then you won't get regular people, people of modest means to serve. And that's why uh, that's one reason why there, there, there hasn't been these restrictions, because people say, well, I'm not going to you're not going to have regular people run if if there's too much restrictions on the trading they can do. Uh, are you saying you have some sympathy with that or, or, or not, you're not saying that? I'm, I'm not saying that. Okay. I'm saying that that's what they would feel. Okay. Uh, and most Americans don't hold private stock. Uh, and <laughs> so people of modest means are not buying and selling in, you know, Exxon or whatever. Uh, they are making money through working. Um, and so uh, I don't think that they're really depending on their stock money. What I'm saying is that these members of Congress, they make their money uh, already, and they want to continue making significant amounts of money through private investment. Okay, no, thank you for the clarification. Yeah, a lot of them are, are, are quite wealthy, and they have yes. vast stock holdings. Um, and they want to stay that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> thank you for the clarification. Um, you know, I, I also wanted to ask about um, your own organization. Um, it's uh, Open Secrets two years ago uh, had a merger. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about sort of uh, what, you know, at, at a high level for, for folks who aren't in Washington, um, what, what did the merger mean? Um, you know, what are your guys's, what, what's your folk, how has that changed the organization and what you do? Yeah. Um, so in 2021, we merged with the National Institute on Money in Politics. And then when I say we, I mean the Center for Responsive Politics, which was a federally focused organization um, dedicated to tracking money in politics at all sort of across all levels, lobbying, foreign lobbying, um, donations, etc. The National Institute on Money and Politics focused on the state and local level. Um, and so now we have access to post-merger, we have access to all contributions to all uh, state and federal politicians, which me and ballot initiative groups and state PACs and all of that, um, which means that you can really see the evolution of donation patterns um, from somebody's beginning in politics until ultimately, you know, their campaign for president. Uh, and it also gives us a much better sense of um, some of the po coordinated political activities for groups across the country. People may have heard of Moms for Liberty, uh, a group targeting um, school board races uh, to get kind of critical race theory and out of the curriculum. Um, so there are, that is a money driven <laughs> campaign that extends across jurisdictions. And by being able to look at uh, the money flow from um, you know, state house to state to U.S. Senate, you can get a much better sense of those concerted efforts and okay. why they matter. Okay, cool. Um, we've got uh, another viewer question. This is from uh, Lee, and Lee says, um, "Is there really any correlation or relationship between which party raises the most money and which party wins the presidency? I mean, or is it sort of somewhat random in every four-year cycle? Uh, you know, no, no relationship." Um, so yeah, uh, if you could tackle that one, I mean, does, yeah. does the does the does the winner in the money race actually end up being the winner, whether it's the presidency or other races? 
there is a correlation between raising the most money and winning. Is it causal? Uh, if you raise more money, will you win <laughs> is what I mean. Um, not necessarily. Uh, because money can be a proxy for support. Um, so if you're raising a lot of money from people in your district who are giving in small amounts, that might mean that you have a lot of support from people who can actually vote for you. If you're raising a lot of money from political action committees based in Washington, D.C., or from mega donors based in a totally different state, um, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. We saw Liz Cheney, for example, raise a ton of money in Wyoming and lose spectacularly because she was not popular in her home state. Uh, and so she had more money, certainly, which would mean that you would expect her to win sort of based on the math, but uh, she didn't have the support. So it's not a necessary, it's not a, 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 a sufficient condition for victory. What it does often represent is that the person has a lot of support or has a lot of name recognition and will win for those reasons, um, not because they have more money. At the presidential level, um, I'd say that it's much more of a, <laughs> I don't want to say it's a coin flip, <laughs> but um, the presidential race is decided in such a different way than a lot of other races with the Electoral College um, and sort of the value of a vote in one of those swing states being more consequential than a vote value of a vote in like California. Um, and so while it has been the case that the better funded candidate has won um, in the last, other than the Clinton Trump race, I think as long as I can remember, um, it is not necessarily because they have that money uh, that they win. Um, are there any examples that stand out for you for folks who raised a ton of money but still lost? I mean, I think of like the um, the candidate, the, the challenger to McConnell a while ago. I think there was a South Carolina Senate race where there was tons of money, but still um, that didn't flip to the Democrats. And what are some examples for you where it's sort of like if you're looking at the money, you would think this person's really going to win, but it but it didn't work out that way. I wonder what are the, the highlights for you in that category? Yeah. My favorite ones are always the self-funded uh, candidates who drop a gazillion dollars on their own race and get like five votes. I'm exaggerating, but Mike Bloomberg comes to mind who spent almost as much as Biden did and didn't even make it a month really. Um, so ex accepting those self-funded candidates, I think exactly the kind of race you're talking about. So high profile Senate races against un nationally unpopular, but locally popular enough Senate candidates. Uh, Susan Collins had a very well-funded challenger, um, but is popular in Maine. Um, Mitch McConnell is in a run in, runs in a very red state uh, that even if he weren't popular, it would have a hard time flipping blue. Um, I think uh, that you can think of, so, so those are the kind of examples that really come to mind. Um, the Liz Cheney race against um, Harriet Hageman. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp raised way more than her opponent and lost um, just because it's hard to be a Democrat in North Dakota. Um, and so it, it tends to be the case where you have a lot of money coming from out of the district or out of the state um, to a candidate who has taken a public stance that's popular nationally with their party, but alienating locally. Um, those are the examples that come to mind. What about, um, I mean, you mentioned Bloomberg. Um, this year we have Doug Burgum, uh, who's mm -hmm. sort of a 
very wealthy presidential candidate. Have you all figured out what's going on with uh, folks who um, just have massive amounts of money and then seem to kind of uh, burn it for these, um, I guess an unkind way to put it would be a vanity campaign. Have you all figured out uh, why we keep seeing that? I mean, you'd need to ask a psychologist. Uh, honestly, I don't know. I, I think you would think that it would be to get a message across or to kind of position for a, a cabinet seat or a cabinet position or an ambassadorship, but that doesn't always happen. Um, I think with Tom Steyer, he was clearly trying to get a specific message out uh, when he ran and spent a ton of money um, in the Democratic primary last cycle. I haven't heard much from Doug Burgum. <laughs> and so it, it, can, it always confuses me why people would do this. I am not a billionaire. I do not have large amounts of money to spend on myself in that capacity. You know, so I, I again, I think that it's more that it's more of a personality story than it is a money one. OK, um, well, thank you for taking a, a range of questions for us. I guess I just to wrap up, I want to ask them. Um, is there anything else you think um, people ought to know about the state of money in American politics and uh, this year? Um, I, what should I have asked you about but failed to? What would you like to add? I think that what's uh, critical to keep in mind is that it's not just about candidate fundraising anymore. Um, you mentioned Trump and his joint fundraising committees. Each candidate has multiple vessels through which they raise money. Um, and so keeping an eye on one specific element or entity can be really limiting in how much we understand what's going on in politics. And post-Citizens United, really a lot of the big money and a lot of what's funding the advertisements that we see on television are super PACs and outside spending groups, which receive tons of money from groups that are rarely accountable for that money. Um, because it's not the candidate. The candidate can theoretically say, oh, I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, but this is all a, co a coordinated and concerted uh, effort by political um, elites and sort of political machines to uh, shift and change and mold what Americans think about political issues. Um, and it's backed by big money. And this is not to say it's a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. It's happening on both sides. Uh, and it's important for people to keep um, a clear eye on the big picture, not just which candidate is ahead in the fundraising horse race. Great. Um, well, that's all the time we have uh, for today. Um, thanks for being here with us, Sarah. Uh, we'll be, Barron's Live will be off tomorrow and on Friday. Uh, we'll be back on Monday. Uh, that'll be Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levinson plans to talk with Barron's Senior Writers Al Root and Nicholas Jasinski about the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Uh, please join us then. Uh, thank you all for listening, and happy Thanksgiving. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.